Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. This morning I'll be reading from First Timothy, third chapter. Verses 14 through 16. It's referred to as this particular passage, the great mystery. Beginning with verse 14. These things I write to you, though I hope you, I come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the word, received up in glory. Would you open God's book, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to begin in just a couple of minutes in verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 5, and let me tell you how happy I am to see all of you here. We have a lot of people who are visiting. Some of you I don't recognize, but we're glad that you've come and you're the place today where you will always be welcome. I'm calling this sermon the most astonishing command. It's not astonishing probably to most of you, but it is to a lot of religious people today. And so I think it's very important just to, just to go to Scripture and find what the Bible has to say about this. Now, before we get into the text, I want to say that tonight I want to answer questions about what I'm going to preach this morning. And I have a list of questions that I think are the most common ones about this subject. But if you have a question that you think of during the sermon, I'd like to have him talk about this. Why, there's a wooden box back there in the lobby, and just, just write it on paper. Don't have to put your name on it. Just write it down, and I'll talk about those questions tonight. I don't think we think about it very much, but, but we have around us all the time a rather expected level of behavior. This past week, there was an NCAA baseball game, and the end of that game resulted in the umpire being suspended indefinitely. That's pretty strong. That's pretty strong punishment. What happened? Well, it was this. So the count was one and one. The pitch came, and it was iffy, a ball or a strike, hard to tell, but the umpire called it a strike. The batter then turned around, shocked at the call, and, and said, uh, and the umpire didn't appreciate that. So anyway, it was, it was two strikes and one ball. The next pitch came, and everybody who looked at the pitch knew that it was a ball. It was really a ball. The umpire, out of anger, called it a strike, that struck him out, the, the batter out, and that was the end of that game. And the umpire then 
just marched straight off. The punishment for what he did was that he was indefinitely suspended as an umpire. He won't get to do this anymore. Now, the point is that there's, there's an anticipated or expected level of behavior, and he violated that to the degree that he can't, he can't do this anymore because he violated that. So he can't be present in those games because of this violation. But there are smaller ways this happens. If you go to Chick-fil-A, there's, there's an expected behavior among their employees. And, and you know what I'm talking about, and it's really very good. I'm always impressed with them. They're always very kind and friendly. It doesn't matter where in the country you go to Chick-fil-A, it's always good. This is not an advertisement, but I always like their employees. Employees are always good. There's a level of behavior that's expected. And if one of those employees doesn't match up to that level, I can tell you they won't be working at Chick-fil-A anymore. But what's interesting is that it's also applicable to the people who are the customers. Well, we don't think about that. But the truth is that if you go into Chick-fil-A or any such establishment, you, you, could, you could behave in such a way that they're going to ask you to leave, right? As a matter of fact, if, if that happens and you tell them you're not going to leave, they will... If this escalates, they would have you have you uh, removed because there's a level of behavior that's expected to be in this establishment. If you're in the military, I can assure you there's a level of behavior that's expected of you, right? In home, at home, there's a level of behavior. Look at Luke chapter Luke 15, and you've got the parable of the prodigal son. And what happened is that he knew he could not live at his daddy's house and live that way with the harlots and all of the stuff he was involved in. You couldn't do that because there's a level of behavior that was expected of people who live in that home, and that's true about your home and about my home. Now, hold that thought. The most astonishing command of the New Testament, but it shouldn't be, is that the church, the kingdom, also has such a level of anticipated behavior. It's not really complicated. It's pretty simple, and that that is that We're a group of people who are united by the fact that we believe in and trust King Jesus. And we have submitted ourselves to his will. Now, it's not the case that we don't sin. All of us do. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, If any man says he has no sin, he deceives himself, and the truth is not in him. So, mm, that's not true. We all sin. That's not what we're talking about today. Suppose one of us chooses to, to live in sin and persist in that and refuses to turn from it. Suppose we turn our back, in whatever case it may be, on the, the will of God, and so we distance ourselves from the, the flock, from the church, from the Christians, by our behavior. So what, what was put in place in the Scripture is, is something we want to talk about today. Now, I want to start over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 5, beginning, and then I'm going to go back to, to the actual story. It's in 1 Corinthians 5. But in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 5, you have the end result. So what I'm going to do with you today is to give you the end of the story first. Then we'll take, the, take up the actual account. The end of the story is this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. But if anyone has caused grief, he's not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Now, what they did to bring him back to the Lord, and it it accomplished that purpose, but this brother in the church 
what they did to correct that inflicted sorrow. And, and Paul now is writing again later, and he says, now, now just speak, keep this tempered. Here's what you want to accomplish, and that's been accomplished. Now pull back, love him. Verse 8, therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you're obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive, anything I also forgive, for I indeed, for indeed I have forgiven anything. I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. All right, now turn your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. What I want to do is an expository lesson on the subject of withdrawing ourselves from the impenitent in our congregations. This is 1 Corinthians 5, and it's very interesting because while you have other passages that teach doing this or carrying this out, that is that there's, there's an anticipated level of behavior for all of us uh, in the church, that here's a specific case, and, and that becomes very interesting. So how was it carried out, and, and what, uh, what did it mean? And there's just a lot of details here that are very important for us. So here we go. This is a case of a congregation of the Church of Christ, and you have sin that elbows its way into the church in this one particular brother. Verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. I should stop there and let you know this. What we're going to see as the chapter goes on is that what's going to happen here is not because it was sexual. It's not because it was salacious. It was because this is a sin in which a man had decided to live and he refused to repent. He wouldn't, he wouldn't change to conform to what is the essence of the church or the, of Christianity, of serving Jesus. He had found something he liked better. He wanted to still be in the church, but he wanted to be in the church and still live away from God. That was the rub. It was that he, he, he chose and then he refused. He chose to live like this, and he refused to turn. It wasn't because it was sexual, just, just so you know. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and not such sexual immorality as is named even among the Gentiles. Now, that's very interesting. I do not know exactly what is meant by this. I know that, that what's about to be explained is that he has his father's wife, that a man has his father's wife. Could it be incestuous? I suppose. And sometimes people say that. I rather doubt that. It's interesting that she's not referred to as his mother. She's referred to as his father's wife. So what probably happened is that the father's first wife, this young man's mother, passed away or somehow is no longer in the picture. And now this man remarries. And who knows, maybe he remarried someone who is a little bit younger than he and maybe just a little bit older than his 20-something-year-old son. And she moves in and the son still lives there. And now you have this, this circumstance where the son lives in close proximity with this woman to whom he's not really kin. And it's so, not, not so different from Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And temptation comes and, you know, there, there you are. But the point is that he's taken up with this woman. The sin is adultery. Adultery. She is married to someone. The fact that it's his father's wife is really beside the point. She's married to someone, and he is committing this fornication with her. And he is a member of the church. Now, she's not. No reference here. Nothing that would make you think, make you think that. But he's a member of the church. And, and so the question is, what happens now? 
I just want to breathe and pause and to say, this is, this is so common in our day and time. And I don't just mean the adultery. I mean it's common for this to happen in churches. Exceedingly common. And even, even in some churches of Christ, this has become just so very, very common. That's why, that's why studying this chapter is terribly important. It's just so right for us to do it. Now here's number two. The first one is the sin. The second one is this. The church's attitude toward it. And you're puffed up and have not rather mourned. That's interesting. Here's their emotion. Here's their, their attitude toward it. They're puffed up. Now you've seen that word uh, term puffed up before in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love envies not. Love vaunts not itself. Is not puffed up. I think it's a rather, I don't know, kind of a humorous description. And it means what you think. It means inflated with your own importance. I'm just inflated. I'm inflated with, I believe I'm somebody, right? So here's a contrast. They, they were puffed up. And instead, what they should have been doing is mourning over this sin. That he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Sometimes our first reaction to something or to somebody, to some stimuli is not the right reaction. And I I know that we've all done this before. And sometimes we've had to go back to somebody and say, you know what, I, I overreacted to that and I want to apologize. Or I shouldn't have said what I said. I was upset at the moment, and, and I, 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 maybe my temper, I don't know, but I, I, I wish I hadn't said that, and will you forgive me? Have we done that before? And sometimes it's in reference to enemies. I mean, I know how to treat an enemy. That's intuitive. You get an enemy, and you just, well, you treat him like he treats you. That's right. I mean, that's just the easiest thing to do, right? No, that's not right. No, First Corinthians 12 and verse 20, and if, I, if my enemy hungers, you know what I do. If I'm a Christian, I feed him. If he thirsts, I give him drink. It doesn't mean that if I see him walking down the street, I go kiss him on the jaw. But it does mean that I'm going to help him if I can. Don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. My first reaction may not always be the right one. So here's their reaction to the fact that they've got a brother in the church who has who's been living with this woman to whom he's not married. Somebody else's wife. And, and how, how do they respond to that? They're puffed up, and they have not mourned. Now, verse 6 says it's glorying. Your glorying is not good. Glorying means that not only have they, I mean, they just didn't didn't just trip into this attitude. it, It was something that they decided. They glory in this because they think that it's it shows something good about them. Now, let that soak in. It, because we live in a time where the chief virtue overall is tolerance. Isn't that true? The worst sin in our culture right now, the worst sin a person can commit is intolerance. Because we're to be tolerant of everything. And no matter what people do, we're supposed to support it. If they choose it, we're supposed to support it. Glorying. Glorying in this case is that it's the deepest kind of sin, I think, because it's the one in which the sinner says, in essence to God, I know that this is against what you say in your word, but I reject that and I'm proud of it. Can you think of circumstances where that might happen today? 
<laughs> yeah, you don't have any trouble figuring that out. We got it. We got it. We got it on the evening news. I guess every night. I mean, of course, it's popular, and that's what they were doing. So maybe it, maybe it went like this. This is how it goes today in churches where they're like Corinth, and and they glory in it. So what it is is that we're about compassion. We're about grace and God's grace, and we understand God's grace. And besides that, there's a lot of different opinions about about how this this whether or not this is a sin. Is this really awful? And aren't we all in sin? And so isn't all the sin equal in everybody anyway? And so somehow we end up with, we just understand things better than everybody else. And there's a lot of this going on. All right. And you're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken from among you. Here's Romans chapter 12 and verse 20. And the Bible says this. Can you throw that up for me? Okay. Here we go. I need to look that up. And the Bible says, therefore, if your enemy is hungry, oh, we talked about this already, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. All right, now back to our text. And the Bible says this. Back to, I'm, I'm losing my place. I'll get it. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. All right, now verse 3. For indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. Now this is God's instruction about how to handle it. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is by his authority, in, in his name, when you're gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, I declare, verse 4 is strong. I want you to do this when you're gathered together so the church is assembled. You do it by the authority of Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus Christ. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. I want you to deliver him unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What this is is about turning the light on. I doubt that the man involved here would have used this kind of terminology. What you're doing with me now when you withdraw from me, yourselves from me, is for the destruction of the flesh. I think what he would say is, I don't think, he, I don't think you understand at all. I can't believe that you would do this to me. The fact of the matter is, we didn't mean for this to happen. How do these things happen? We got together. Both of us got to, we just, I mean, it, we just fell in love with one another. I don't know. And I'll tell you something else too. My father was not treating her well, and I'll treat her a lot better than he did. Nobody understands this. Nobody understands this. But I can tell you this, this is real love. And I don't know why you would deny us of our happiness. But that's how he might explain it. Probably would. How would she explain it? She's not a Christian. I think she's probably fit to be tied. She's furious. She's already spoiled her marriage with her adultery. And now the very idea that the church wants to, reverse this relation. She's finally found love. After all this time, she's found true love. And she wouldn't explain it this way. You know how God explains it? You know what God puts to it? He says, your glory is not good. Says that to the church. He's fussing at the church. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What's flesh? Not just talking about sexuality. It's talking about a mindset. And the mindset is that, that this, is, this world is all there really is. 
I don't know if they would say it this way, but this is the concept of flesh versus spirit. And the flesh is the idea that this life, there's no real heaven or hell. There's no God on his throne. There's no Bible that is to which we're accountable. It, it's, it's all right here. It's all what I can see. That's to, to live after the flesh. Live after the spirit would be the opposite of that. Deliver such a one to Satan. Now there's God's perspective. And what, what the withdrawal is to do is not to... De- not to damn him. The, the perspective of God to deliver such a one unto Satan is to put light on this. It is simply to put the light on it. Some people say that, that deliver such a one to Satan is the idea that you find in the book of Job. You know, that God let Job go into the, the hands of Satan, that is, to tempt and try him, to put him to the test. And that that's what's happening here. That's not what's happening here. What happened with Job is much different. What happened with Job is a good man who was tested to see if his faith would hold. Not in the case of this guy in 1 Corinthians 5. This, this one in this chapter has already failed any tests. He's yielded to temptation and now he's living away from God. What this means is that you're going to put the light on it. We're not going to pretend. Now what happens if you do? What happens if you have egregious, impenitent, open sin in the church, contrary to who we are, what we are, why we exist. What if you have it going on and you don't correct it? You don't do anything about it. What happens then? And the answer is you chisel away at our reason for existing. You chisel away at it. You call into question whether or not we really believe what we're saying. Where we really, we're not really, really care about that. That's what it means to deliver such a one to Satan. It is to put light on it and say, this is not of the Lord, this is of Satan. This this fornication is not right. And we're not going to be a part of it. We're going to, as the Bible says here, we're going to remove him. Now, here's uh, verse 5. And point number 4. Dual objectives. There are two reasons that Paul gives why this must be carried out. That is the withdrawal of this, this brother who's living in this adultery and he refuses to repent. Delivering such a one to Satan, he says, for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I don't want you to think that this is something that's done hastily. That would be a mistaken idea. You have, you have a companion passage over in Matthew chapter 18, and one brother sins against another, and you have this sort of played out where that, that the first thing you would do is go to him privately, and then if that didn't work, if you wouldn't listen to that, then you would, you would take one or more with you, and if that didn't work, you would tell it to the church, and if that didn't work, then you would withdraw fellowship from him. You would pull back from him. Two things. The first one is that you would deliver such a one to Satan. Why? For the destruction of the flesh. How, how is the best way to, to bring somebody back? We love him. We want him back. We want him to be right with God. We want him to go to heaven and he's straight away. And what do we do to fix that? There's an idea that's over in Luke 16 when the rich man and Lazarus died. Remember? And Lazarus went to a place of bliss. The rich man went to a place of torment. The rich man now is crying out in his torment, send Lazarus to touch the dip tip of my finger with water, right? And that, that couldn't happen. But then the next thing is, well, I've got five brothers, and could you just send 
send Lazarus to my five brothers, because if one, I mean, he, they would listen. That would be pretty impressive that he comes up, Lazarus comes up out of the grave, and he goes to my brothers and says, look, you need, this is real. You, you need to, to make things right with God. But what, what was the response from Abraham? No, if they won't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now, if that shocks you, and frankly, it does me, you just have to read the miracles of the New Testament and see that many people saw those miracles and walked away. When, when, when the Lord raised Lazarus from the dead, you know, the people, those Jews who were his enemies and watched it happen, they knew that he had raised him from the dead. And they said, you cannot deny it, this is what happened. And they turned away and they started working in a way that they could crucify him. What's the best way to bring somebody back who repents? And Scripture says it's not bringing somebody back from the dead. To, that would be amazing, but that's not the way to do it. The way that you set up to do it is in the church. And we living human beings go to one another and say, I love you, but you can't live like this. This is not right. You've got to come back. Come on back. Come on back home again. And ultimately, to withdraw ourselves when that becomes necessary. So two reasons why you would do this. The first one is to try to save his soul. That's the first reason. And here's the second one, verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In 1 Corinthians 12, you have a description of a human body. And the church is, is described in this analogy like the human body the foot and the hand and the eye and the ear. Uh, everybody in this room, I guess, has had some connection to cancer. In a family member, or perhaps you yourself have, some of us have lost family members to cancer. And you know how, how this works is that sometimes a, a little cancer will be discovered in in a part of the body, some organ of the body, maybe the breast or maybe the, the lobe of the lung or someplace there's some cancer discovered. And you act very aggressively right there at the beginning. You've got to do that because you don't want it to spread, to, to mastitize, right? You don't want it to, to go farther than that. And, and what happens is that it, it, it will affect other parts of your, your body, other organs, until there's nothing you can do to fix it. Everybody in this room knows about that. The same thing is true in 1 Corinthians 5 with this. And Paul is looking at the church as a body. And what happens is that if you don't correct this, it will grow and it will poison the body till you can't really recognize the church as being what it really is. You lose your distinctiveness. You, you lose the essence of who you are as a church. People who serve King Jesus and follow his will. So here's verse 7 now. Therefore purge out the old leaven. That's, that's like what happened. Remember, for the Passover, to prepare for the Passover, you clean the house of all the leaven. In this case, the leaven is talked about as being this sin of this man who will not repent. Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There are 13 verses in this chapter. Seven of them have to do with cleaning this away from the church. 
Verse 2, that this deed may be taken from you. Verse 5, deliver such a one to Satan. Verse 7, purge out the old old leaven. Verse 9, I wrote to you not to company with sexually immoral people. Verse 11, now I have written not to company, not even eat with such a person. Verse 12, do you not judge those who are inside? Verse 13, therefore put away from yourselves the evil person. Now we get to verse 9 the practical application. Now, I said at the beginning that this wasn't because necessarily because it was a sexual sin. It was because it was an impenitent sin. It's because he, he was confronted with this. People have begged him. They've tried all that they can do, exhausted those efforts. He's going to stay with this woman. The love he has for this woman has blinded his eyes. So he's going to stick with this. Now, verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. You see the logic? Somebody might say, okay, but there's a lot. I've worked with a ton of people that are away from God. Am I to withdraw from all of those people? And he says, I'm not saying that. If you, you, you follow that course, and you're going to go out of this world. And I don't want you out of the world. I need you in the world with a distinctive influence. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. See, I, I, he says, this, it's not my point to say that you need to judge those who are without. But within, there's got to be a presumed level of behavior. There's got to be that. And now watch how he expands it. It's not just the sexually immoral. I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what I, what have I to do with judging those who are on the outside? Do not you judge those who are on the inside. That's the right thing. But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Now, just to expand this, let me go through some verses, passages of Scripture away from this one that have to do with this subject of withdrawing ourselves from the impenitent. Here's 1 Timothy chapter 6. And here's some verses that are the sins of doctrine. This is the biggest one. I mean, when you just run the references that I'm about to do, what you'll find is the biggest issue would be the sins of doctrine. 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy and strife and reviling and evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Titus 3 and verse 10, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. Divisive. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 14, we're talking about doctrine. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he might be ashamed. Again, that's the object of the withdrawal, that he would be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. 2 John 9, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ 
does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. Don't endorse him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Then there's sins of the tongue. Titus 1 verse 10, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Don't let that go on. Don't let that go on. Now Romans sixteen seventeen. What about division in the church? I urge you, brethren, note those who cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. And then 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6, walking disorderly. Now, when you look up the Greek for walking disorderly, it means, it's really very simple. It, it's, um, it means walking out of order. It means that there is an understood level of behavior that is required of all of us in the kingdom. And it's got to be, it's got to be upheld because if it, it isn't, what happens is that we lose our distinctiveness as Christians and the church loses. Either we stand for something or we fall. For 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walks disorderly and not after the tradition which he has received of us. It's an extraordinary command. Extraordinary and, and somewhat, as I said at the beginning, astonishing today. After all, what we're about is growing the church. We, we want to reach out in compassion and help people to be saved. <clears throat> we want to love people and we want people to go to heaven. That's what we're about. In the church of Christ, what we are teaching is that we've got to go back to the New Testament for our faith and practice. What we've got to do is to restore New Testament Christianity. And what I'm saying <clears throat> is that an unavoidable reality about this church in the Scripture is that they were taught to practice the withdrawal of fellowship. Not because they didn't love people. On the contrary, it's because they did love people. Not because they wanted to damn anybody. We haven't the power to do that anyway. But they were to recognize what is already true in someone who has left the faith. Try everything you can, exhaust every possibility, but when that's done, when that's finished, and this is the the way it's to be handled. I want us to remember that the church doesn't belong to us. It belongs to Jesus Christ because he died for it. And for that reason, he gets to decide how we're to conduct ourselves in the house of God. <clears throat> I'm so glad that you're here this morning. Tonight, what I plan to do is to answer questions, and I've got about a half a dozen. Throw up that list, would you? There we go. Here's some that I plan to talk about. What if a person withdraws himself? Or... What does a person do who's been withdrawn from? How does he get right with God? How should I treat somebody who's been withdrawn from? We'll talk about these things and whatever questions you have, well, put them in the box back there and we'll take those up and we'll discuss them tonight. Is there someone here this morning who wants to obey the gospel? I hope so. If you'd like to be right with God, <clears throat> if you'd like to be in Christ, you can. Repent of your sins and confess Jesus and we'll immerse you in water for the forgiveness of your sins. If you've been right with God at one time, but you've strayed away and you want to come back again, this sermon is not about hate. It's about love. You'll be received back in full fellowship 
The only stipulation is you need to make things right. Would you like to do that this morning? We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.